This is Digital Communicators, the comms focus show for the tech sector. Hi, it's Simon of Fable. Welcome to a special edition of the Digital Communicators podcast. Artificial intelligence is the hot topic in the tech sector at the moment. So I recently sat down with a couple of AI experts to talk about the impact of the forthcoming European Union AI Act, which is set to create the world's first broad standards for regulating or banning certain uses of AI. This podcast is a recording of that discussion. Enjoy. Good afternoon and welcome to our latest webinar here at Babel. My name is Simon Coughlin. I'm a director at Babel. We're a London-based tech PR agency. We work with tech clients across multiple sectors, and I'm pleased to see many of those clients with us on the call today. I'd like to thank everyone for joining us. We will allow some time for questions at the end, but do feel free to use the Q&A function on Zoom to ask anything in writing throughout the discussion. First of all, I'd like to welcome our panelists. Jane Finlayson-Brown is a partner in the tech and data practice of one of the world's top law firms, Alan Overy. She has, she has been advising various businesses on the upcoming EU AI Act, as well as on the approach to artificial intelligence in the UK. Matt Kuzner is an Associate Professor in Machine Learning at the University College London. He was part of the first cohort of research fellows at the Alan Turing Institute in the UK's National Institute for Data Science and AI. Many thanks to Jane and Matt for joining us today. So we are just two months into 2023, but it's already very likely that artificial intelligence will be the single most talked about tech topic of the year. The launch of ChatGPT has sent shockwaves throughout the world, leading the big tech firms to sit up and realize the tangible impacts that AI is likely to have on all of our lives over the next decade. However, while the technology has the potential for good, fears have been raised that it presents significant risks to people's rights and well-being. The EU is set to create the world's first broad standards for regulating or banning certain uses of AI. The European Parliament is expected to vote on the draft by the end of March, with a view to adopting the Act by the end of this year. The Act will extend to providers and users outside of the EU where the output is used in that region. So I'm very pleased to welcome Jane and Matt to today's discussion on the potential impact of this Act on both consumers and businesses. So perhaps let's kick off by going back to basics. So in recent months, it seems that every day we pick up a paper or look at our news websites and artificial intelligence is being discussed. But what do we actually mean by AI? Matt, can I turn to you by giving your definition of artificial intelligence? Yeah, yeah. Really from the beginning of AI, it was given an operational definition. If a machine can do things that humans can do, things that are usually very hard and do it with algorithms, that machine has artificial intelligence. And you might ask why define it this way? Why not? Why don't we come up with some maybe clearer formalism of intelligence? But the reason is the answer really goes back to the birth of AI. AI really begins around the 1950s when Alan Turing devised this very simple thought experiment that we now call the Turing test. And in his paper describing this, he opens it with, can machines think? But he was clever enough to realize that it would be extremely hard 
to come up with a formal definition of thinking. We don't even fully understand our own minds. No, so instead he replaced this question with an equivalent one, which is, could a machine generate answers to questions that are indistinguishable from a human's answers? And that's a question that you can answer. And it started to make people think about how to make a machine that could pass this test and then developed into the broader definition we have today, which again is if a machine can do many very complicated human tasks, that machine has artificial intelligence. And I would say people maybe have some disagreement about which tasks constitute very complicated human tasks, but the development of algorithms towards this goal is the development of AI algorithms. And Jane, in your discussions with your clients at the moment, do you have many people coming to you asking for definitions of this type of technology, or is there a clear understanding within your client base? I think from a legal perspective, regulatory perspective, this has been quite a hotly debated area as to what should fall within the scope of the new regulation in Europe. The actual definition of what is an AI system has been has sparked quite a bit of controversy. On the one hand, there's a desire to ensure that obviously it's broad enough to capture systems that may have harmful effects and require some degree of regulation. But on the other hand, people are worried that it might be too narrowly insofar as it, it ends up capturing all of normal software. So we can see with the various iterations of the different proposals for the AI regulation that the regulatory interpretation of what is an AI system and within the scope of the legislation is differing. So we started off with the Commission's version of it, which is slightly broader. Then we had the Council's version in December last year, and it narrowed it down and it introduced a sort of an overarching test of something that has an element of autonomy it designed to operate with some autonomy as a sort of principle within the definition and we still await the parliament's definition and according to some leaked information last week that's still an area that is under debate as to try to get this right not too broad not too narrow but a sensible definition that captures what we all conceptually think of as being artificial intelligence and obviously, over the last few months, we've seen a lot of press coverage about the benefits of AI, the development of ChatPT, generative AI, and what it could potentially do for the technology. But clearly, the need for this regulation has been discussed over the past few years. So can we perhaps touch on some of the fears about AI? What have been the main concerns about the potential use of this technology? Matt, do you want to cover off that one? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So... I, I like to think about four big concerns. There are probably other ones, but I think these are some of the biggest ones. One, the first being data privacy. Let's imagine there's an amazing new AI algorithm that can detect whether you're going to develop Alzheimer's or not. All it needs to train on is people's complete genetic data. Because this is such an important technology, a hospital might want to learn this model and then make it public to people. So you could download this model, run it on your own DNA, see if you're going to develop Alzheimer's and if you can do anything about it. But the issue with this is that if there was someone interested in discovering someone's DNA that was used to train that model, it's, it's very possible to reconstruct up to some accuracy their DNA sequence. I can actually tell you the details of an algorithm that would do this right now. This is an extremely relevant problem, data privacy. The second one are what are called sort of adversarial examples, or this is, a, this is many different names for this robustness, but adversarial examples are things that can be constructed 
by an attacker to produce irregular behavior in an AI algorithm. So here's another example. You want to make a self-driving car. A self-driving car is really just a set of AI algorithms that do different things to keep passengers safe and keep the car following traffic rules. One of those AI algorithms that's extremely key is one that identifies stop signs. See so stop sign 100 meters ahead, it starts slowing down to a stop. Pictures though have shown that you can make specialized stickers in a certain shape and color. You could slap it on a stop sign and you make that stop sign invisible to AI algorithms. And the sticker doesn't even need to cover any of the words stop or anything like that. It just covers a small fraction of the red in the sign. And the reason this happens is because an AI algorithm is only trained on regular looking stop signs without stickers. So it sees the one with the sticker, it has no idea what this is. And so it says there's no stop sign. So this is another, the second sort of big issue, I think, with current and potentially future AI. A third one is a discriminate, unfair discrimination. We already know that there are algorithms out there that discriminate against certain groups. So there's this very famous example in the US where an algorithm was deployed in healthcare to the health needs of patients. Once it gets someone's health needs, it allocates a certain amount of funding. Those with higher health needs get more funding. Those with lower get less. So the way it worked is it used healthcare cost as a proxy for healthcare needs. So, okay, people who use little costs should get little funding because they don't have much need. But historically, Black patients' healthcare costs have been lower because of th things like systematic and structural racism that have impeded their access to treatments, not because they're inherently healthier. So the fact is that AI can maintain and even create inequality where that doesn't exist by exploiting sort of crude correlations in data. So, and this biased data creates these biased algorithms. Okay, so the fourth one, which I think maybe is the most people are most familiar with are the, is radicalization. The classic example is AI algorithms decide which ads to show users and big search engines make nearly all their money off these algorithms. And all the AI algorithm though wants to learn is, will Pat click on this ad? And if the answer is yes, it's going to show Pat that ad. If it's no, it's not going to. Now, there are just some fraction of ads that are created that are maybe sensational or alarming. And one example of this is like clickbait, where the headline of an article seems very dramatic, but the actual details are not very interesting. Or articles about conspiracy theories, the headline is dramatic and the details are also dramatic, but there's not a lot of evidence. Or other sort of outrageous articles. So what could happen is, let's say Pat sees an ad, and the reason Pat clicks on one of these web pages is because it triggers a sort of type system in the brain that provokes sort of fear or alarm in Pat. And this is not a sort of rational response that Pat is having, but it's not like a thoughtful sort of click. It's a, it's a survival system reacting. So let's say Pat clicks on an ad for, let's say a Donald Trump webpage. And the next time Pat is on Google, Pat sees just a few more ads for Trump related webpages. Pat is now more likely to click on these ads. There's just so many more of them. And, uh, and then it keeps a building until Pat has seen all of his or her ads on related to Donald Trump. And so you might say, this might not be such a big deal. This doesn't, but this affects everyone on Google, of course. And this is the kind of another, maybe the fourth largest thing that AI currently and will likely in the future have issues with. 
Thanks, Matt. And Jane, from your perspective, are there particular concerns that clients have been coming to you with about the potential impact of AI? I guess there are sort of things which are already existing in regulation at the moment. So leaving aside the EU AI Act, which I will come to, in current legislation, the GDPR has always been based on the principles of fairness, proportionality, transparency, accountability, a number of things like that. And one can foresee very clearly, and the indeed the regulators, the data protection regulators, focused on a number of these with particular reference to AI systems. For I wouldn't go over things which Matt has already said, with which I agree. There are areas, other areas such as transparency is a key data protection principle. So when you are thinking as a company in terms of the particular data processing that you might be engaged in. The GDPR requires you to explain that in a clear and transparent manner. And that's very challenging with a, an AI system, of course, which even people like Matt, with his brain the size of a planet, who's busy developing these, it's really very tricky to understand and for the average individual to have a, a sort of a, an authentic view of what's going on. And we saw this on, I guess, a small scale, but nonetheless very important scale when we had in the middle of the pandemic, we had algorithms which were used in our education system to allocate exam results. How did they, how were, were they accurate enough? That's another data protection principle. Accuracy, fairness, transparency, and all of these things obviously attract fines under the GDPR if you get them wrong because they are the fundamental principles. So areas, those areas are of concern, I think, when clients and companies are looking at how they develop something that would be compliant. Thank you, Jane. And now moving on to the Act itself. Um, Jane, could you perhaps give us the basics of what the Act is trying to achieve and which type of companies or individuals is it most likely to impact? Sure. So the regulation is, is really, I think it's fascinating to look at how the EU is approaching this and how for instance, the UK is approaching it as well. So I might do a little, I know we're meant to be talking mainly about the EU AI Act, but I might do a little compare and contrast if that's all right. So from the EU perspective, they're thinking about the putting onto the market of AI systems, which, as we talked about before, is slightly subject to debate as to exactly how that's defined. And they are trying to come up with very much a proportionate approach because they want to have this as a risk-based piece of legislation. And so therefore, they, may, they have a category of AI systems which are banned altogether, things which they consider to be so harmful that they should not be put in the market and used. So for instance, uh, systems which might subliminally affect your behavior in a sort of really adverse way, social scoring, things like that. Um, so things which they consider to be so unattractive as to be banned. And then they have another set of systems, AI systems, which are designed or designated as high-risk AI systems. And they're the, those are the systems which attract most of the obligations. And then there are other systems which might be just require some degree of transparency and being plain that those are in operation. But in terms of who does it affect, there are a whole different sort of series of what they call actors, as it were, in this ecosystem. So providers, people who develop the system or have it developed for them, who are the, the sort of the brains behind what, what's going to be done. They have users, which is not end users, but people who put the system into use. And then the, those somebody who falls within that definition has a different set of obligations. And there's importers and distributors. 
and it's it's anticipated that the act will have extraterritorial effect so that if you are not necessarily established in the EU but nonetheless you fall into this category and you're putting the system into use in the EU you will have to comply with it and then there are a whole series of obligations which go to things like the quality of the data set the risk mitigation that you're meant to undertake the degree of human involvement a whole series of monitoring of post-market monitoring etc range of different obligations which flow and then briefly just how are we approaching this in the UK is somewhat different and we're still awaiting a white paper which will has been promised for a while it has to be said obviously with our various bits of political turmoil in the autumn all of this has somewhat been delayed but we are approaching it from a slightly more I guess lighter touch perspective the government has said a number of times that they want to see more guidance rather than big fines the EU AI Act does have a degree of quite serious fines attached to infringements, but they want to have more guidance rather than fines necessarily, as a, certainly as a first stage. And they want to rely on existing legislation and existing regulators, whereas under the EU AI Act, we may have new regulators being involved. Some countries are opting for their existing data protection regulators, but for instance, Spain is going to have a different regulator. And so we are very much looking at regulatory convergence, having a sort of little committee of regulators, Ofcom, CMA, the FCA, the ICO, all looking at how AI works and a sort of much more sort of sectorial type approach. And interestingly, in the EU space, that's one of the concerns that's been raised there is that the data protection regulators are worried and anxious as to how the EU AI Act will fit with GDPR and making sure that all of the different other bits of legislation in the EU at the moment, such as the Data Act and the Data Governance Act, GDPR, the AI regulation, et cetera, et cetera, all have to come together and sing in a sort of harmonized way. So very different approaches, but just going back to my original point, the GDPR already does cover a number of the issues that one might be concerned about. There are obviously there is scope for quite large fines under GDPR in any event. Thank you, Jane. And just looking in more detail about who could potentially be impacted by this act. So clearly within the tech ecosystem, you have um, companies developing different types of technology solutions to overcome different types of challenges, whether they be security challenges, automation, data analytics. So I'm just wondering which types of technology are going to be most impacted by this act and artificial intelligence as a whole. Matt, any, any views on that? Yeah, so I think um, so I think one way to answer to look at this is to look at what's the sort of harshest provisions in the act that strict that restrict sort of development and it's it's easier to quantify in a short period of time so i'm going to expand a little bit on what jane was talking about the categories that were banned all, all together and maybe look at those a little bit and try to figure out how this might restrict some algorithms so to add to what jane was saying about these categories that are banned altogether, they have these sort of the act has these four categories main categories two about manipulation this is what jane was referring to like subliminal techniques cause physical or psychological harm. And then another manipulation one is exploitation based on age or disability, also called that would cause physical or psychological harm. The third, also Jane mentioned on social scoring, 
And then the fourth is on real-time and remote biometric identification that unless there are specific law enforcement purposes for that. I, so one way to pose this question is, do these sort of change current or exist or future AI development? And I would say the answer is only, I don't, maybe this is slightly controversial, but I think it's only by a little bit. And so here's what I mean. So for the first two categories on manipulation, they're only restricting certain types of manipulation, like subliminal manipulation that's covert, and then techniques that exploit age or disability. So to justify uh, this description, the draft comes up with, the draft AI Act comes up with some examples of things that uh, seem a bit dystopian sci-fi novels. So they come up with an AI-optimized pitch played in trucks to keep freight drivers draw, driving for longer hours. And that's the first example for the subliminal. And then a doll with an AI voice assistant that gets children to do dangerous things using things like a game. So I think one sort of initial red flag is, I'll describe it a bit more later, but it's a bit odd, I think, that the draft starts with making up these use cases instead of thinking of looking at current ones or natural extensions of them. And so let's talk about those. So I think it misses some key use cases, such as, let's say you're a right-wing news organization and you want to generate racist news articles using AI techniques with the hope of inciting violence against certain groups. As long as this isn't covert and you're not exploiting age or disability, this wouldn't fall under the, prohi the prohibitions. Further, if AI is only it's only restricted if it leads to physical or psychological harm. So if I'm a vendor, I can manipulate users to spend more money than they normally would using AI, so long as I can argue this doesn't lead to physical or psychological harm. So I think for these, there's only, for these categories, there's not much prohibit prohibitions, not much restrictions. So for the third category, I think it's even less clear in the draft. It could have concerns scoring based on just government data. It could involve credit card records or welfare records. It's also unclear whether you could hold an AI system even responsible using the type of language in the act. These, the language says AI systems that lead to unjustified or disproportionate treatment, but it's easy to not to take the blame away from AI algorithms. This is, goes back to what Jane was talking about with transparency. It's possible for a vendor to say, okay, there's a negative outcome on those who deploy the systems, but, um, sorry, there's a negative outcome from this AI, but it's it's the users, right? It's the people who are deploying those systems. It's not the AI itself. Or you could say the people who deploy it, they can also say the AI wasn't the determining factor in the outcome. Because of this lack of transparency, it's easy to say there's other aspects. It's not clear that it was the AI. There's not, yeah, so there's not like a clear restriction placed, I think, on in that third category of social scoring. And then, and there's no sort of clear way to assign blame. And then the, for the final category in biometric systems, I think there are just these two main issues. Um, one, there's no prohibition on selling biometric systems. So EU vendors could sell biometric systems that would be illegal in the EU, but the, to people outside of the EU. And th these are things that are actually related, yeah, things that are already happening. There's French company Idemia or Morpho. It sells facial recognition to the Shanghai Public Security Bureau or the Dutch, Dutch company Noldis sells facial expression analysis to the Chinese Ministry of Public Security. So this doesn't restrict that. 
And it also doesn't restrict systems that analyze video footage for biometrics afterwards, like at a protest, or if it's online. Like if there's a live stream and people are doing biometric identification, there's, there's no restriction. So sorry, there was a lot of details, but to summarize, I think in the strongest impact the act could have on AI development in these restricted prohibited settings, it's limited to very specific settings that seem quite rare that they may not even exist. And even for settings that do exist, there seem to be so many like ambiguities or loopholes that's hard to see how it pre would prevent development. So if we go back to the four things that I mentioned earlier about the four concerns, so data privacy, the draft to my read, and I, we should confirm this with Jane, but it doesn't seem to mention very much about privacy at all. And maybe this is because of GDPR, but I, so in industries such as healthcare and finance, where AI might, might pose a data privacy issue, there isn't a lot of language that I could find on that. And then for adversarial examples, so these would be things that would be side effects of existing algorithms, right? Like I can stick a something on a onto a stop sign. There's, as far as I can tell, there's no yeah, there's no pro prohibition of of certain types of al algorithms that would lead to this. And then for things like discrimination that I gave you that example of this right-wing news organization that is completely allowed. So it doesn't seem to reduce, it, it talks about certain types of discrimination, like age and disabilities, but there are other types that aren't prohibited. And finally, for radicalization, I think one of the most surprising things about the act is it, it seems to, from the prohibition section, it has what I think is essentially no effect on certain systems like ratings and recommendation, because it explicitly excludes, quote, like systems where distortion and harm arises from the dynamics of the user base entwined with the AI system. So these are AI recommendation systems, which can radicalize in the example I mentioned, and are also dating apps, which have, are known, have been shown to have discriminatory ratings for people in certain groups. Yeah, from the perspective of these high risk categories, there's not a lot of restriction for the, the, so those are the prohibited categories, excuse me. For the high risk categories, I haven't talked about those, but it seems, yeah, it seems to me that the ones, like those might have certain effects that Jane was referring to, and maybe we'll be able to talk about a bit more because I think she knows quite more about it than I do. But the, as for restrictions, there seems to be a lot of loopholes in the current draft. Thanks, Matt. Jay, anything to add on what Matt was saying about the privacy elements of the Act? Yeah, I think that's one of the concerns that the EU data protection regulators have raised is you're just making sure that all of this legislation is harmonised and that one understands. But I think the intention is that GDPR sits alongside the EU AI Act. So you have your data protection obligations as well. And that's one of the things that they're worried about, that it's not massively clear where you've got overlapping concepts like transparency comes up both in GDPR and also in the AI Act. And you've got different participants in the AI Act, which don't correlate exactly neatly to this concept of controller and processor in the GDPR. And you have to, so for companies looking at matching all of these obligations up and ensuring that they discharge it holistically in a way that they can operationalize, 
that's quite challenging. And these are things which I guess will be clarified further through guidance and further debate in the industry, etc. But yeah, the, and one of the points where it does come up actually in the new council version of the AI regulation is when you get to fining, it does say that the fines should take account of or that if there's been fines under other legislation such as GDPR. So that's, you might be concerned that you'll get huge, massive fines, but so that's clearly an area which the um, council has thought about, which is not yet settled. It wasn't in the commission version. We'll have to see where all of that lands. But it's certainly true that the EU data protection regulators later is in the form of the EDPB, which is the board, and the EDPS, which is the supervisor that supervises people like the European Commission. They've been writing letters and issuing opinions and saying, we've got to make this work together, guys. We've got to fix a number of these sort of overlaps, harmonise things. We've had an interesting question in from an audience member related to what you were saying, Matt, about the potential nefarious ways in which AI tech can be used. And this is around culpability of technology vendors that create AI related programs and platforms. We've seen various media reports about the way that ChatGPT has been used for creating things like code and malware. So is there anything in the new act, Jane, that would relate to the potential culpability or liability of technology vendors who create these platforms and the way that they are subsequently used? So as we mentioned earlier, there are different categories of persons or roles which are subject to the act in different ways. And I think Matt was mentioning the user concept to be people that put these sorts of systems into operation rather than necessarily the developers. And one of their obligations is that they do have to comply with, so they've got a sort of statutory obligation under the act to comply with the terms of use. So if they end up trying to circumvent the terms of use, it may be that's an infringement, depending on how well the terms of use have been set in the first place. And of course, the people that develop it, the providers have got a number of obligations such as risk management and so forth, where they have to really think very carefully about nefarious aspects, etc., and try to solve for that and ensure that things like data sets are robust and are not biased, et cetera. And presumably as part of that set their terms of use in a way that is carefully calibrated. So I think there will be areas in the act which will bump into this very issue that your audience member has raised and that you, depending on who's done what, one would be looking at a potential liability under the legislation based on that. There's also, slightly beyond the scope of this seminar, a separate EU AI liability directive, which is under consideration as well. Thank you, Jane. Moving on now to the timeline of this act. Jane, have you had any insight into when we can expect this act to be approved and when the legislation will start to be felt by the various stakeholders? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think we're going to, the, as I was mentioning, we've had the council's version of the regulation was in, came in December. And so people have been obviously pouring over that. We are expecting, we've seen a couple of leaks about what the parliament is concerned about, but we are expecting two of the committees in the parliament to take a look at this during March, towards the end of March such that I think the, that we'll have the trialogue type procedure as well. So I think earliest is probably going to be April. But even once it's all been agreed in that trialogue procedure, 
it then obviously gets published and it takes effect roughly sort of 20 days after that. And then there will be a sort of bedding in period, very similar to GDPR. If you remember, we had two years for people to get up to speed with GDPR. And in this case, it, it may be 24 months and maybe 36. There's different periods being bandied around at the moment. So we're still a little way off where we're this actually biting in effect. And the regulators have to do quite a bit of work in that period. Some countries have announced already who will be the regulator. So in France, it's going to be, for instance, the CNIL, the data protection regulator, but that's not necessarily going to be the case in all countries. It's an existing data protection regulator, but there's going to have to be quite a bit of running at this from a regulatory perspective as well. Great. Time for a little bit of audience participation. So talking about the timeline of this of this act. So we've got a number of people who've dialed into this webinar who actually work for technology vendors, the people who are, who are creating technology with elements of AI. So the question is, if you work for a tech firm, has your company started to consider how the EU AI Act will impact your business? question is on the screen now. I'll give you a few more seconds to answer that. Okay, let's end the poll. So not quite 50-50 split. The marginal higher number of people have said yes, they are actively considering the implications of the AI Act for their business. It'll be interesting to repeat that poll once the AI Act um, passes legislation in the coming months. But yeah, really interesting to see that there are already a number of tech firms out there. Presumably, a lot of that will depend on the resource that you may have, the size of your company, the extent to which AI is part of your technology platform. So yeah, interesting to see that yeah, most people on this call are considering how the act will impact their company. Moving on now to the timing again. So obviously artificial intelligence has been increasing in volume in the media over the past decade or so, particularly over the past few months, we've seen AI rise in volume. So when it comes to regulation and this act in particular, is there a particular reason, Jane, that you think that the legislation has taken this long to come into effect? Is there a particular re reason why 2023 is the time the AI Act will come into force? Yeah, you're right. It has been kicking around for quite a long time. I'd be interested to see Matt's views on this as well. But I think because it's such a sort of tricky area in a way, it's, it's not surprising it's taken a while. People have been struggling with it, both what the technology is, what it looks like, as well as some of the legal implications of it, who's liable for decisions that are made by a machine, things of that nature. Where does all of this, how do we approach this? So I, in a sense, it did take us a long time to get GDPR up and running. I think the first draft of GDPR was 2012. And there had been a lot of chat about that before actually the first draft was produced. And then it took years for that to go through very big arm wrestle and lots of US companies flying into Brussels and booking out all the hotel rooms and lobbying furiously. So in a sense, I'm not wholly surprised that this has taken a while for us to get to where we are on AI. And I also think that the, the EU is has bitten off a lot of legislation at the moment. So it's also looking at DSA, DMA, the various other data acts. 
plus it's got cyber stuff it is looking at so many different pieces of legislation at the moment there there is a huge amount on its plate i don't know matt if you've got any thoughts about this i from the technology side i think i think maybe part of the re another to add to your reasons about why it's maybe taken so long i think the uses of this of ai technology um for very important life-changing kind of decisions it's it hasn't been very i think public of by so for instance when the deep learning revolution starts it's about 2012 with alexnet and then it's i would say until maybe five year five or so years later that we start seeing like the first inklings of people's I, I would say worries about ai systems when we see these articles coming out of places like propublica talking about AI algorithms are now being used to help make parole decisions. And then once this comes out, we see, okay, actually AI is now helping with not just advertising parole, but insurance pricing, lend healthcare. And now I think it's really in the public awareness. I think there's a, so that's, I would say in 2017 to like 2019 or something like this. And people in the machine learning community start thinking about what to do about these adverse effects. And I think that at least in, in certain countries, the sort of this on how to, how, what to do about this has been maybe technology focused. Can the development of AI technologies is, is at such a breakneck pace. Why can't the technology adapt to these issues and fix them themselves? And I think we saw some of the issues of, of that approach where you would have systems like I would, okay. So one, one good example is when we start looking at systems that we're correcting now this compass result. For those who aren't familiar, I should explain a bit more. The pro compass is a scoring system for people who are going up for parole. And there was a complaint made by ProPublica that was saying, actually, the people are, if you, the way, if you look at the scores, people who are minority races, they end up getting high, like lower scores when you know, in truth, they would have, if you were to release this person, they would not likely commit a crime again. Because this was, this is how you wanted to predict the score. If someone's released and they commit a crime, you shouldn't have released them. But the system was much more wrong about minority race individuals. But then it comes out that North Point was balancing a different sort of criteria that they considered sort of fair. It turned out after people tried to have both. Why don't we have the original criteria and the criteria that was complained about by ProPublica? And it turned out if you have, if you try to have exactly both of these things, it's impossible. There's this impossibility result. You can't. You have to make some sort of ethical decision. So there isn't just like a technological solution to this problem. It has to involve regulated, it has to involve legislation. And so I think. That so once that hope has died down a bit, now that people started to really, I don't know, potentially invest a lot more into developing legislation. Thanks, Matt. We've had another question in, which Matt, I think you'd be ideal to answer this one. Again, it relates to definitions. So the phrases artificial intelligence and, and machine learning are quite often used interchangeably. Does this act make that the distinction between those two things or is it just a case of semantics yes yeah, so this is a good question i would say there are yeah it's a bit of both the reason so ai is an, a very old sort of definition it's a very old sort of delineation and i would say the motivation for 
AI systems was can we can we solve very complex human tasks? And it was, and the solutions were also quietly human focused. But I think AI, this was in like the 50s, 60s, it ended up being really too focused on what humans could do. People were saying, we want to take something humans can do very hard, try to solve it with algorithms. And this is what led, there was a lot of excitement around this, but then this hype died around the 70s when it turned out that AI systems couldn't solve this very simple data set. You just have four data points. You have the quadrants of your graph and you have two data points in opposite corners with different classes. So I have two circles in in these regions and two axes in these regions. And they showed in the 70s, this was Minsky and Popper in 1974, you couldn't get this data set right. So this really destroyed the hype that we're not going to have, uh, we're not going to have machines in the home helping us with laundry and stuff like that. And so machine learning came at the bottom of this hype and said, let's, instead of taking a top down, what can humans do? Let's try to solve the approach. Let's take a more bottom up approach. Let's start with a computer. And let's try to find a program to learn things from data. It doesn't have the ambition to create humans. It just says, I just want to learn some pattern in, in, in data. And this sort of changed the focus away from things like logic and towards things like statistics and optimization. And these are fields that are extremely deep. And when machine learning leveraged them, they were able to have these amazing successes, I would say, uh, First was like the backgammon player by Jerry Tazzaro in the 90s that could beat humans. And then, of course, more advances, further advances of that. We have AlphaGo that can beat humans at Go. And so machine learning, AI wants to solve these large problems. Machine learning is focused on more smaller self-contained problems. And the benefit of self-contained problems is you can express it in these clear-cut optimization problems. And so, yeah, so I think that's the sort of the main distinction. And when... I think people start to make get a bit worried about AI. I like to reassure them a little bit that, yes, there are machine learning algorithms, AI algorithms that can solve very, tasks very well, beat a human at Go. But they can, that AlphaGo can only do one task. There's no sort of general purpose thing that can do tens of thousands of tasks just like humans can. So th- we're far away from that. And I think this is because of this distinction between AI and machine learning. Thank you, Matt. We're coming towards the end of our time. Just a quick reminder that you've got, if you've got any questions for Matt or Jane, then please do use the Q&A function. So just finally, I'd like to touch on the global impact of this act. Um, so clearly it's an EU act, but there's going to be in its implications from across the world. So Jane, can I turn to you to ask what the potential impact of the act will be for organisations outside of Europe? For example, have we learned anything from the implications of GDPR? Yeah, so I think the EU Commission has got a taste for extraterritorial effect of its legislation. And so in the very, one of the early articles in the Act, it talks about the scope and it clearly says that it will apply to providers, that's the developers of people who have the system developed, who are putting it on in the market, putting the system in the market, on the market in the union, i.e. in the EU. But it says irrespective of where those providers are physically present or established. So whether they're in the EU or outside the EU, they're still caught if they've put this system on the market in the EU. And users are going to be caught, so people who deploy it, where they are actually either 
physically present or established in the union, or the they're not, but the output of the system is used in the union. So there is this degree of extraterritorial extraterritoriality. I can say the word. Now, if you're outside the EU as a sort of provider, you have to appoint an EU authorised representative. So that's, that person, that company is meant to be jointly and severally liable alongside the provider. So the, in other words, it gives the authorities a sort of direct person against whom they can enforce all of the obligations of the provider against an EU authorised representative. And that's going to be quite a difficult role for people to take on in a way in that they will then be liable as if they were the provider for the fines and so forth. And so that will lead to contractual indemnities and so forth. I think in terms of how people operationalize it, we quite often have seen, just to your point, Simon, on GDPR. So GDPR applies extraterritorially as well, but equally you have um, companies that have common systems that are in countries which don't have a GDPR standard. But quite often, it just doesn't make sense to take advantage of a slimmer compliance regime in one particular country if you're building a regime that has to work for the EU. And we may well find that that's the case in the UK. So as I was mentioning, there appears to be a slightly lighter touch basis in the UK at the moment. We're still awaiting this white paper, so we don't know quite where we'll end up. If you've got a multinational company that's going to end up putting its AI system on the market in the EU, they'll have to build it to the EU level anyway, even if they were established in the UK. So there will be a lot of common sense applied to all of this, irrespective of exactly what the rules are, you know, do you just build the same procedures everywhere because it's easier rather than trying to take a bounce somewhere where you don't have to be quite so compliant? It's probably not worth having those derogations in place in your business, too complicated to manage. But we do find that with GDPR, companies tend to build in all of the same processes in their back office, like privacy by design, etc. But they won't always offer all of the same rights. That's a question of reputation or sort of other values as to whether they think it's always appropriate to give, say, privacy notices everywhere, which they don't may not have to give in certain jurisdictions, but they do in the EU. So there, there may be those nuanced approach where you make sure that a whole swathe of your compliance operations is to the top level, the gold standard, so you're compliant everywhere, but some things you might not offer in-country if you don't have to. I hope that makes sense. It does very much. And Jane, you mentioned the potential fines that may may result from non-compliance. Looking again at the experience of GDPR, what are the enforcement challenges of an act that's created by the EU Parliament? So, for example, if you're a firm in Australia that's incorporating AI into your technology system, how much do you have to fear from this EU Act? Yes, that's a really good question as well, insofar as it can be quite difficult for companies to, for the Commission or for the net, really it would be the national regulator to enforce fines if the company is not within the EU. Most companies that do have some operations in the EU, to be honest, the big global players, there may be companies which try not to come within the purview of being established. And I think that is one of the reasons that for providers, they have to have these EU authorised representatives who are going to be jointly and severally liable to make it easier. But that's for providers, not necessarily for users. All of this is still a little bit in flux as to exactly how that will land. Clearview um, 
has had some enforcement decisions against it on sort of facial recognition and so forth. And then that's another sort of interesting precedent where you've got companies that have already been targeted under the EU GDPR. Thank you, Jane. And just a final question from the audience before we wrap. Jane, you mentioned how the regulation includes the data sets that AI programs are drawing from. Could yep. you give us a detail about what that looks like? Are developers, for example, required to make sure that they're using a certain standard or size of data pool? Yeah, so the regulation does talk about high quality data sets. And I don't know if, Matt, you've got a view as to what that looks like in in practice, because I suppose from a regulatory perspective, they need to make sure that these phrases work in a number of different contexts as appropriate to the particular AI system. Yeah, I think the, I guess one way to put it is data. So data sets that are complete, and if your AI task is to, identify health risk from certain health factors you expect to be maybe even indirectly related to that but more than that you want you want to know the provenance of the data as well is this data that we're taking from patients from 50 years ago with very different lifestyles than ones today or is it actually you know data i collected yesterday and so yeah the reason is the more data you have about these systems, the less you, the less you'd be worried about them changing in different contexts. If you move from one hospital to another, where you might have patients of different sort of socioeconomics or, or whatnot. But of course, you have to make sure that you can preserve users' privacies in ways described by GDPR and other regulation that way. But so without getting into the nitty gritty details of exact AI architectures, these are some of the guidelines that I think people might want to use when developing their sort of AI's systems. Great. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Jane. So we've come to the end of of our time here on this webinar. We will certainly be looking out here at Babel for the fine detail of the Act as more news comes out over the coming months. It's certainly make a lot of headlines in the coming year and beyond. So Matt, Jane, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been really interesting. And thank you very much also to our audience for joining us. Thank you so much, Simon, for inviting us. For more information about Babel and other episodes of this podcast, head to www.babelpr.com forward slash podcasts.